Thank you so much, Charlie, for joining me today. Super excited to talk about your path and your journey into uh, you know starting a bank, so to speak. This is a uh, really interested in the in the banking side of things and a couple of projects and uh, businesses that I've worked on have dealt with the in the financial sector. And I know it can be you know a little bit uh, a little bit archaic in a lot of ways and trying to get trying to get uh, a modernized uh, banking infrastructure and, and specifically in the space that you're in now, sort of sustainable food and sort of the agriculture ecosystem that is is becoming much more top of mind, I think, for a lot of people as we see sort of, you know, supply chain infrastructures kind of fall by the wayside a little bit and just the health of our, our food and what's in it. And there's just so many ways is how can we get more regenerative and sustainable farming leaders and then get into front of customers more and more. And obviously finance has a, has a big part in that role to get that going. Um, but first talk a little bit about your journey to even, you know, start Walden Mutual and get involved in, in starting a bank because your, your past has been in food and energy a little bit. So, so let's talk, talk about that path to even get into Walden. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to. And thanks for having me. Grant, um, it'll be fun to to chat with you. Uh, so I've always been pretty passionate about sustainable energy, agriculture, and waste, and how those intersections affect climate change and other environmental problems. Earlier in my career, I uh, co-founded and for a long time sat on the board of an advocacy uh, organization, nonprofit that um, was formed in favor of the first proposed offshore wind farm in the country, uh, hmm. which is just off the coast of Cape Cod, which is where I grew up and very contentious project where you you actually had some of the sort of leading progressives in the country, the Kennedy family amongst them, come out against the project, sort of saying, hey, we're for wind energy, but just not here, not not in our backyards. And I, I found that somewhat oh. problematic. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, because, you know, the alternative was uh, pretty obviously a coal plant in somebody else's backyard. So I, I learned a lot in in sort of intervening in, in various places in the development process of that project and trying to move public opinion. And uh, so that, that was pretty interesting. I spent uh, some time with a, a number of different venture-backed companies that were in the clean energy space. There was a big investment boom, as you probably know, in the sort of late 2000s era. Uh, most recently, one that was doing composting and anaerobic digestion. So I spent uh, a lot of time in California's Central Valley, which is the most agriculturally productive place on the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet it's sort of teetering on the edge of failure if somebody turns the water off, which has happened a few times uh, over the past few years. Uh, and it, it very quickly just becomes a grapes of wrath dust bowl again. So I learned a lot in the course of that work uh, as it relates to, you know, the impact of industrial agriculture on surrounding communities. And it was such an interesting dichotomy relative to my experience with this this wind project off the coast of Cape Cod, because the many communities in, in the Central Valley that are totally dominated by a single type of industrial agriculture, a cattle feedlot or an egg laying facility or what have you. And it's just sort of their impacts on the surrounding environment and community are so sort of bare and clear. I mean, it was just like unbearable to even walk down the sidewalk because the smell of ammonia was so strong. And so, uh, you know, that that really struck me because there's very few places in New England that people would tolerate that. And so I guess thus thus begins uh, a sort of quest to reinvigorate a more sustainable local food ecosystem where the choices we make in our 
food are not sort of far away and diffuse impacts on other people, but there's something that we can see positively right in front of us in our, in our surrounding communities. So uh, in 2013, uh, that's when I started Walden Local, which is a brand of sustainable local meat in the New England and New York area. So we work with area farms uh, exclusively in New York and New England that produce grass-fed beef, pasture-raised pork, chicken, lamb, and then a number of ancillary items like a grass-fed butter, uh, raw milk, cheese, pasture-raised eggs, those types of things. Um, And then sell them uh, directly to our member families in a sort of share program reminiscent of a, you know, vegetable CSA. And that's grown to be uh, a really nice size business. And and we have about 30,000 member families from central New Jersey to Portland, Maine. And uh, it was in building the supply chain of of that business that it became clear there was a pretty interesting opportunity on the banking side because there were some clear gaps in the existing lending infrastructure uh, where we were always in the position of you know lending to our supply chain partners in one form or another uh, and so the sort of deeper deeper I dug into that the more clear it became there were some there were some interesting opportunities to support businesses across the value chain. So not just production farms, but value added manufacturers, consumer brands, trade brands, et cetera. That sort of very quickly led to, well, how how do we lower the overall total cost of capital for this ecosystem? Because that could unlock a much more significant rate of growth. The lowest possible cost of capital comes from federally insured deposits. Uh, So that's sort of where the bank construct came came from and why it felt worthwhile to go after an actual bank charter because it, it buys you that low cost of capital which in turn you know we can pass on to our partners uh, from a lending perspective what do you is it particularly to fund farmers locally local farmers is that the sole sort of business that sort of walks in the door so to speak is that is that what the the bank is funding No. So production farms, um, but also the entirety of the ecosystem and even some things on the periphery. So manufacturers, distributors, consumer brands, trade brands, and then even things that sort of may not be food themselves, um, but again, support the functioning of the whole composting business. We just recently made a loan to uh, an amazing uh, dog treat, uh, dog food business uh, that sort of upcycles underutilized waste streams from area farm and fishery businesses. Uh, so there's a lot that sort of fits under that umbrella. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Are they mostly quote unquote startups that walk through the door or are they traditional business that, that are looking to you know, segue into a much more regenerative or, or sustainable business model. Like if somebody walks in the door that are doing sort of, you know, traditional way of things, do you turn them away or do you do you help them say, hey, we can, you know, give you a loan, but maybe you need to change some of your, your practices to kind of fit our ethos? Great question. Definitely the latter. So the idea is not to qualify loans based on a set of impact-driven criteria with the exception of saying, hey, we're really not looking to lend to one, businesses that are really far outside this ecosystem and therefore outside our area of expertise, 
Two, we're not looking to fund businesses that, in our view, are actively doing harm. But beyond that, we're looking for folks that want to learn and grow and sort of move along this spectrum. And this spectrum being a, a more holistic analysis of how a business affects all of its stakeholders. And so the way we do that is borrowers take an initial assessment at the point of underwriting, and then annually thereafter take the same assessment again, uh, the same way you know you would normally submit your financial statements to a bank. You submit this impact assessment alongside those. And it's very closely derived from the B Corp assessment, which in my view is sort of the leading edge of, um, of that sort of, again, holistic stakeholder impact analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's how we assess impact at the individual borrower level and in aggregate across our whole portfolio over time. And and um, you know, to your question, the the idea is to move people along that spectrum uh, and share best practices of the people that are sort of further along than others. But if we said, hey, we're we're only going to lend to organic producers, for example, or certified or folks that are already only certified B Corps, I think that's not only really limiting from a, a business perspective, but it's not a way to sort of push the impact model forward, I think, as, as productively as we otherwise would be able to. I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's just, a. I think most most people want to you know, improve the way they do things. And especially as we, we understand a little bit more about whether it's sustainability, regeneration, whatever you want to say, there's a lot of ways that it's even more economically viable than the traditional methods that, you know, they might be using, you know, so totally. I think teaching them or, or just showing them a, a different route to take that is, you know, not only, you know, beneficial to their land, right? I mean, they want, you know, I assume, you know, many people want their land to be in their family for, for you know, for their lifetime and lifetimes after that, right? But, but eventually, if you uh, only extract and degrade the land, that's that's not going to be possible. So I, I think that a lot of people just who I'm talking to, you know, they, they just want to learn, right. They want to understand how they can, you know, obviously make their land more viable economically, but also sustainable and the ability that it's going to be there for a long period of time and, and have healthy soil and land for their generations to come. So I'd love, I love that ideology of like, let's not turn people away just because they're not where we want them to be quite yet. But totally. um, that educational path and, and sort of handholding is like, what we need in every sector, right? Not even just food and ag. Yeah, I mean, apply that that same lens to other businesses elsewhere in the value chain, like an old school manufacturer that might be a co-packer for mm-hmm. uh, you know d- different dairy products or something. It's there's a lot of low hanging fruit there that we can bring to bear uh, in that relationship. So not only just commercially valuable things like hey, here's some vendors that might be useful. Here's some potential uh, customers just by being sort of immersed in this ecosystem. But we can also say, as it relates to this assessment, this is a sort of a really silly example, but one of the questions on the assessment is, do you have, does your organization have a mission that is articulated apart from obtaining a profit, a non-financial mission. And there are so many companies where just that exercise of writing down the impact you want to achieve in the world apart from making a profit is such a powerful first step. And so there's, you know, two dozen other examples like that that are pretty low-hanging fruit that can catalyze 
uh, I think over time, a pretty significant amount of change in the way these businesses think about their um, their surroundings. I wanted to touch on a little bit of the the mutual bank side of things and sort of the differences, I guess, with a traditional whether it's investment bank or a traditional regional bank that maybe we're all sort of aware of versus a a mutual bank because there are some there are a bit of significant differences, right? That I think people might not be aware of, and I'm cer- I was certainly not aware of. I guess let me start by saying there are two sides to the bank balance sheet, right? There are loans and deposits. Mm -hmm. And I know that seems obvious, but a lot of people don't think about when they deposit their money at a bank that it's not just sitting in the safe, it's actually going out into the world and being used. And so part of what was really interesting to me about opening a new bank was, gosh, where my dollars are sleeping right now at night is pretty destructive at times. And so if you're someone who's looking to align your you know, food dollars and your clothing dollars and your the, the sort of things you put out into the world with a certain set of values and impacts you want to see, where you bank is incredibly impactful. And in fact, you know, the top 10 banks in the world have invested over a trillion dollars in fast fossil fuel development since the, the Paris Accords were, were signed. And so that to me is the nature of the opportunity on the deposit side. So we're we're developing a consumer brand that is, you know, purely digital bank account where people can align their sort of everyday deposit dollars and savings with a set of impacts that they want to see right here in the region. And the mutual nature of our structure is sort of reinforcing our long-term commitment to that impact. And what I mean by that is when we were first getting set up, the intended outcome here was not to get sold to some mega bank. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to align the organizational structure for the long term to sort of preserve that impact profile. And it's important to acknowledge that we're trying to address some systemic challenges here, you know, inclusivity in lending, sustainability in in agricultural production uh, and food production more broadly. They're not going away in a five-year period. And so we needed an organizational structure to match. And so the mutual structure is very much like a credit union. It's a cooperative structure in which the bank is ultimately owned by its depositors. And so there's no pot of gold at the end of the runway, uh, or rainbow rather here. It is uh, intended to be a permanent, permanently sort of independent structure. More specifically, what it is, is it basically takes the notion of ownership and splits them into pieces. And so you sort of have the economic rights of ownership, you have the voting rights, and then the sort of liquidation rights, who gets the proceeds of a sale. Right. In a stock-owned company, those are all the same people. In a mutual, it sort of splits them into discrete groups as to who gets what. So we're really governed by a board of 50 or 60, they're called corporators. And these are people who essentially represent the long-term interests of the depositors uh, and maybe all the bank stakeholders more broadly. And they're the ones that appoint our board and sort of steward the organization for the long term. I love that. I uh, I wasn't mutual mutual banks credit union. Those are those are nonprofit institutions, right? Credit unions. 
Credit unions are typically also nonprofits. Yes. Because we just get like, we get a check at the end of the year. Like yeah. a small, we had a small check because you bank with them, basically just distribute the profits back to, you know, their depositors, which is like their the members. Yeah. members. Yeah, exactly. So is that, is that similar how mutual bank works? Is that? Precisely. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. The mutuals are technically not structured as nonprofits in the same way. Um, and that's part of why the structure made sense for us is that to, these days you really can only start a credit union with philanthropic capital, gotcha. which is somewhat limiting from a size and, and therefore impact perspective. So we are starting with um, what I would refer to as more blended capital of people who are looking for a combination of financial and non-financial yep. returns. And that allowed us to start with a much bigger base. There was also a more practical reason we couldn't organize as a credit union because there are significant restrictions on commercial lending for credit unions. They're really intended to be gotcha. consumer or the vast majority of their activities are intended to be consumer. So they're very similar models, but um, a mutual was uh, a better fit for what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah. And then using the special share deposit shares where you can raise the capital, the, that's the capital requirements for bank is 24 million. And you raise that from 230 community investors. Like that's sort of, that's sort of a beautiful thing in itself right there. Right. People think, of, <laughs> well, if you think of like starting a bank, right. You're like, Oh, that's impossible to do. Right. For like normal people to be like at that level where they could just like, Oh, we could just like be part owners in a bank. Right. So to speak, you don't even think it's kind of possible, but like, 24 million divided by 230, like it's not that crazy for a person to be involved, right? A family or, or whatever it may be. If people are looking to invest money, usually when you're at that stage of life, you have, you know, capital saved up to invest, right? If you're, if you're an angel investor or something like that, you're looking at ways to invest your money. You know, it's, it's not as crazy as you would think, right? In this model, right? So that's why I thought it was really, it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I think, uh, I mean, interestingly, um, our minimum investment was $5,000. So a yeah. good portion of those um, were relatively small checks. And the way we organized that capital raise was very much akin to how a bank was started 100 years ago. And that's oh. just a bunch of people in a community with shared ideals sort of pooled their savings and agreed not to take them out for a certain amount of time. Right. And of course, you can't really start a bank that way today because of modern capital requirements. And so they're, they're structured a little bit differently. But that was the intention was to sort of build a community around the capital as much as um, as much as the you know deposit base and everything else we were doing. So, yeah, I think that was a really a really great result and gives us a, a good base to to start from. And it was the, the first mutual bank to open in 50 years in the US. Like that's just like so odd to me, I feel like. Like how is that, I guess why is this not, did not, has not happened in 50 years? Well, it's a, it's a structure that has sort of fallen out of favor for a number of reasons. Not the least of which was, it wasn't clear what type of capital you could use to do this. Okay. So, Again, like a hundred years ago, we didn't have the same requirements around, you know, the FDIC and and bank capital that exists today. And uh, so, 
for example, you, you, you could back then start a bank with debt. Uh, you can't start gotcha. a bank with debt now because you need core capital that uh, essentially provides a backstop to the federal insurance fund. And so that's really the role that this capital is playing on the balance sheet um, without getting into yeah. too many of those nuances. I mean, I think the mutual structure, though, has another reason it's fallen out of favor is just it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a hybrid. And since 1970 or so, generally, folks have sort of liked thinking about their investment portfolio in very discrete buckets. So you sort of you have your you have your equity bucket, you might have a little bit of fixed income bucket, and then you have a charity bucket. And for higher net worth individuals, they might have more buckets. Maybe they have an, an angel investment, you know, bucket as you're alluding to or or others. But at the end of the day, there's very little overlap. And I think only right. recently has there been this idea that if you wanna if you wanna align your dollars with a set of values, you think have to think holistically about the entire portfolio. You can't invest in, you know, a tobacco company on with one pocket and then on the other pocket, write a check to the American Cancer Society uh, as a charitable donation right. um, without sort of scratching your head around, you know, how how those two things are interacting. So the mutual structure is a little bit of a a hybrid structure that uh, I think attracts that type of investment and that type of progressive thinking that that people are increasingly aligning around. I wanted to just talk a little bit about your your journey into this, and I guess how was the how did this even come across your radar, right? And it, like starting a bank, right? Was it through relationships you had? working in food, working in energy, I guess, working on policy as well in, in some degree of form. Like, I guess, when did the light bulb go off for you that, hey, this is this is the route I think I should take and, you know, or <laughs> you should take as, as you know, a friends or, or your network? Like, I guess, how did it come to your attention that this was even possible? I, a couple of different places. I guess one, especially as it relates to the mutual structure is I've always been interested in these nuanced areas that sit between traditional nonprofits, for profits, and sometimes, you know, public sector influence as well, and sort of hybrid structures that sit at those intersections. And so I've gotten to know the folks at Organic Valley quite well, which is a producer-owned cooperative out West that has a really interesting governance structure. Uh, Bob Burke, who's on our board at the bank, is also the chair of the board at King Arthur Bakery, uh, which is primarily a flour company that is 100% employee-owned um, through what's called an ESOP, which is another sort of alternative ownership model. Um, I'm, I have some good friends that have a candle company called Keep, K-E-A-P, uh, really forward-thinking guys that wanted to set up a sort of permanent structure for their company, and they were willing to give up their equity in doing so. And they did, uh, they set up this sort of purpose-driven trust, uh, essentially the exact structure that Yvonne Schudenard at Patagonia just released. Yeah. yeah. And so the more I dug into those structures, 
the more interested I was in that ideal of uh, sort of creating something with longevity that had real teeth from a governance perspective around the non-financial impact that the organization was trying to have. And that's where I just sort of encountered this structure of a mutual bank. And relative to, for example, this purpose-driven trust concept, which is relatively new, mutual banks have been around for 200 years and <laughs> and they actually have served communities incredibly well. They these are These banks fail at half the rate of stock-owned banks in times of financial crisis. Going back to crises, you know, in the late 19th century, and they have served depositors really well. And I can't think of anything more appealing from a depositor perspective than it sounds like what you've tapped into in the credit union world. The same thing is like, hey, being able to say to a depositor, there's no one else here. We work for you. Right. And at the end of the day, if we're profitable, we find a way to deliver those dollars back to you, whether it's in the form of interests or additional services or lower rates on loans or, or a combination of all of those things. And so I felt like that structure was just sort of in need of some revitalization in the modern era, but it was a really timely opportunity to, to try to reinvent it. And it, it just felt like a perfect match for the opportunity I was talking about before that was was pretty plainly clear on the on the supply chain side of like there are a lot of businesses that are looking for an entity that understands this ecosystem and and can bring more to bear than you know just a, a loan with an interest rate. You had touched on it a little bit earlier, but let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the some of the companies that walk through the door. Maybe that to give people an example, right? Of of who's walking in the door, sort of who's getting who's getting loans and things like that. Because it, I think there's so many you know interesting stories that you probably hear and companies that are being started or or, or being you know changed and, and their philosophy might be be changing um, to to go this route a little bit more. So I guess to talk about some of the cool companies that that you see that maybe you want to give a give a shout out to. Sure. Yeah. And I assume you mean metaphorical door <laughs> because yes. most of what we do, we do have a physical location up here in Concord, New Hampshire, but most of what we do is, you know, through, through digital means, through our, you know, mobile app that we're about to launch and on the lending yeah, I, I side. Did, I did door in, in quotes, but I forgot we're just on audio. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, we do lend though across all of New York and New England. And we've also worked with some businesses even outside of New England. So I'll, I'll just give you a couple that I find sure. interesting. One that's outside the region that I love uh, is a business called Fishwife. Uh, they're trying to reinvent the category of tinned seafood, which has been mm, so yeah. unloved for a long time. Um, and the founder there, Becca, I think is just a super inspiring leader and and has built a super interesting brand. The one I was alluding to earlier it related to dog food and dog treats is a business called Polka Dog that has a couple retail locations around the greater Boston area. People from Boston will probably recognize that that name. Um, but they also have a wholesale business and a direct-to-consumer online business. And it's just incredibly compelling what that business has been able to do with products that often would otherwise be thrown away or used in a much lower value add 
products. So for example, fish heads, you know, might be destined for a rendering plant uh, to end up as fish meal as an additive to, you know, a, a generic fish food or something. And so the ability to instead sell them to a higher value buyer like polka dog that is going to dry them and, and sell them as a premium dog treat is an incredibly high value add for a number of um, fishermen in the area. Yeah. Another one is uh, a wholesale bakery uh, down in the Katona, New York area called LMNOP, a really, <laughs> a really awesome, thriving wholesale bakery that was opening their first retail location. Uh, so we did an equipment financing with them. And then one that's close to home here is a business called Monadnock Berries. It's a good example of the type of farming that is increasingly thriving in New England and New York. It used to be a, a wholesale berry business, you know, I think yeah. they were growing berries, black currants, and some other specialty berries. And, you know, they have one customer and it's a traditional sort of wholesale transaction. It's a beautiful location though, at the base of Mount Monadnock. And so when the son, the sort of second generation took over, it, you know, he, he sort of uh, opened the door to having this place as a wedding venue and developing nice. a, your own business and adding a sort of agritourism element to it. And so it went from, in my view, um, being a relatively low margin, you know, very tough business with a lot of, uh, you know, you're really just at the mercy of this single buyer to a much more interesting diversified business that uh, can withstand the ups and downs of nature uh, much more strongly than it than it could a decade ago. And they're increasingly, you know, uh, guy's name is Oliver. He's added a brewery and they have different specialty beers that they add their berries to, which are super interesting. Where's this at now? You said brewery, so now <laughs> I'll look it up. It's, uh, I forget the name of the town. It's right at the base of Mount Monadnock, though. It's sort of in the Keene, New Hampshire area. Monadnock. Um, I don't even think Google can spell that one. <laughs> but it's a good, it's a good spot. So, I, you know, the full range of, that gives you a sense of the full range of businesses that, you know, we, we've worked with. I want to be clear, you know, we're, we have depositors money. And so we're not a venture capital firm. Right. We can't take those same types of risks. And in general, we're looking to support established businesses that have really solid operators behind them uh, that are sort of have an important presence in this, this ecosystem I'm referring to. That being said, the reason we've assembled the group of people that we have is so that we can take folks through a, a more differentiated underwriting process that truly understands the nature of these types of businesses. Yeah. Uh, and so that maybe allows us to go places that another bank wouldn't, um, but not to the extreme of writing a check against a piece of paper is not really what we do. Sure, sure. No, that's... That's great. Everything is like, I don't know. I mean, it, it feels like I'm just so surprised that it has not. And I feel like it, it will happen more and more now. I think hopefully we will see, you know, more of these. And that kind of comes into my last sort of final question here around, you know, the goals for, for I know you guys just started, right? So like this is, you know, obviously looking further down the pipeline here, but other states going to need this. 
right? I mean, local food and distribution and just the supply chain, you know, it, it's going to be needed across America. So like, I guess is the goal to have is to expand a little bit more or is it, is it just your specialty is to just stay super hyper local because that's where you can have the most impact, have the most information and education to give back to people you know, who come to you. Um, but if not, that's not the goal. Then what, what what are some of the goals for for the next you know three years, five years? Yeah, great question. I think it I think it is the latter half of what you said. I, I think we're trying to inspire others to do right by their own communities and regions. And our aspiration isn't to just gl- grow a sort of global mega bank. That doesn't mean we don't have big ambitions. It just means there is plenty to do and plenty of room to grow a pretty big impactful business in you know what amounts to a quarter of the country's population uh, in this this part of the world so i think looking out five years or so we are hoping to play a part in inspiring a more sustainable more just more vibrant local food ecosystem. And we'd love to see others in other parts of the country and other parts of the world sort of follow follow in our footsteps, so to speak, or pick yeah. elements of, of our model that work work for them in their their part of the world. I mean, interestingly, you know, why why Walden local worked in this part of the country uh, and continues to work is because this is a place in which you can very productively grow perennial pasture. Mm. You know, this is not the best part of the world to grow monoculture row crops. Gotcha. Uh, and so uh, that that business makes a ton of sense in this part of the country, especially too, because you know, you've got this supply chain in relatively close proximity to very large metropolitan areas. And that is not true in other parts of the country. Um, right. Not to say that the, the business wouldn't work there, but it just might look a little different. Yeah, right. Uh, so the same is true of of uh, banking. We don't pretend to have the answers for everyone. We're just trying to do right by our community and our region here. And I think from a consumer perspective too, that's much more powerful and meaningful from a, a brand, a brand building perspective yeah. because... There's so many things out there that just talk about impact generally and in a very diffuse way. You know, we're sort of planting a tree every time you do X. And that that was the impact model of 10 years ago. I think now it's show me the show me the local, tangible and specific impact that you're having uh, in in our community. And that is so much more meaningful. And and I think you know, more powerful thing to build a brand around. Absolutely. No, I mean, perfectly said. That's the, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's such a great point. It's, I always, always say like, uh, we can innovate in a lot of different ways, whether it's product, whether it's business model, whether it's materials, fabrics, we innovate in all these different ways. But at some point, if you're successful and, and like you scale, what does the innovation impact look like? Um, because there's, a lot of times you can scale and then all of a sudden your impact is like, it looks different or you can't keep that same impact model. Like obviously like the one for one is sort of this, again, that was like the model 10 years ago, but how do you innovate and sort of like impact 2.0? Like how do you look at the whole ecosystem of that business, just giving back 
there could be eventually some negative side effects to that as you scale. And so, you know, where's your product being made, right? Like where's, which materials are you using? There's these, all these different ecosystems of thinking about things as you grow and scale, uh, because it can get, it can get really, can get odd, right? It, it, when you, when you do really good as a business, um, sometimes their impact model could have adverse effects or, or you don't know how to deal with it at scale. Um, yeah. It's uh, so this is like what you said, I think playing a tree is, is obviously it's sort of simple, right? People can associate with that very easily, right? The, the one for one Tom's model, right? That's, it's an easy association. Oh, buy this, it plants a tree, whatever it may be. And that's, and that's great. But if we're going to try to solve, you know, bigger problems, the impact needs to be um, a little bit bigger, right? We need to think about not only, you know, one tree, but how do we, sustain a farm, right? <laughs> or land, you know, our food yeah. infrastructure, these things are, are big problems that we need to solve. So they're, they're going to have to have big innovative impact thinking, right. And models that can associate with that scale. Um, because that's what, I think that's what we need. And like you said, I mean, I think people just are going to gravitate toward things that they can see, right. If they plant trees, that's great, but they'll never see the tree. Right. But if they, they have impact in their community, you know, in six to 12 months, they could actually see what happened, right? And see the outcome of it. And like, that is, that is very, very powerful. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's well said. I think as, lo- as long as our sort of North Star is local, um, yeah. there's a number of different dimensions we can grow from there. And so, you know, I could see us doing a lot more in energy than we're doing today. We've talked to some solar developers that are using, you know, sort of underutilized agricultural land as as primary development sites, which I think is sort mm-hmm. of an interesting yeah. next area for us. Um, there's all kinds of interesting things to do around waste. And so we yep. there's a lot of room to grow in, in those additional dimensions, but... I always come back to that localized impact as being um, sort of the most powerful lens through which to address those issues. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy. Um, best of luck with, with the launch and, and the next sort of you know decades to come, my man. So uh, truly appreciate your work and your vision and uh, good luck the rest of the way. Thanks so much, Grant. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, check us out, WaldenMutual.com and uh, join us as a depositor. We're we're opening the doors in the next couple of weeks. Can't wait. I'll link to everything below.